All right. As you find yourself in Acts chapter 2 this morning, I want you to remember that last week as we read um, the account, it was the day of Pentecost. Remember that we looked at the correlation that was drawn kind of between Pentecost and the Old Testament, which was 50 days or seven weeks after God delivered Israel from Egypt, and Pentecost in the New Testament, which was around 50 days or seven weeks after Jesus had risen from the dead after his crucifixion. We made that correlation that God was speaking to the church, to his people, his called out assembly, in a new way that he had never done before. He met them at Mount Sinai and he spoke through the thunderings and the crashings and he gave them the law through Moses. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus resurrected and then after about seven weeks or 50 days, we see Jesus ascend and then about, well, 40 days, he was on this earth after his death and his resurrection and then he ascended into heaven and then his disciples were to wait in Jerusalem for the power to be sent from him, the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, we see that Pentecost was really the birth of the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, Pentecost, which we just read about last week, we see the birth of the church, the called out assembly, the ecclesia, the the group of people that would be God's people. He would be called by his name. They would be called by his name. And Jesus, whose head, excuse me, who is the head, was then and now still is today the head of the church. There's no man, there's no person that is a sinful person that God would make the head of his church. He makes Jesus the head of his church. So as the Lord revealed this pouring out of his spirit on the believers who were gathered that day, the experience was both heard and seen, and we looked at that. Oftentimes we have this affinity for the things that we can witness with our eyes and with our ears, and we thrive on what is tangible to us by our senses. We want to trust in our senses often. But all too often we trust in those things that we see and that we've heard more than we trust in the things that God's called us to believe. And so God decided to reveal himself through his son, the person of Jesus Christ, and yet many did not believe in him or receive him for who he was. And we saw that as we studied through Mark last year. Jesus' disciple Thomas was an example of that. He was an example of one who did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he told the other disciples that he would not believe unless he was able to touch the scars of Jesus' hands and to see him personally. And oftentimes that's where we're at, right? We're like, Lord, if you're really there, then, then show me tangibly. And so with, in Thomas's case, Jesus did that. Jesus appeared to him physically. He said, hey, you want to touch the scars of my hand? They're right here. Here's the hole in my side. And he witnessed that. Of course, Thomas didn't touch him after that because he's like, okay, all right, I see, I, I see the point you're making. But Jesus responded to Thomas after appearing to him physically, and we see it where he says, blessed are those, Thomas, who believe and yet have not seen me. So there's a blessing for you and I. We don't have that same opportunity that Thomas did, but at the same time, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen, who have not touched me, and yet still believe. And the Apostle Paul expresses this same kind of idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He said that we as Christians are called to walk by faith and not by sight, not by our, our senses. Remember, Eve and Adam got in trouble in the garden when they, they relied upon their senses and they, they saw that the fruit was good and they, 
they noticed that it was good to eat and that it would be good to sustain them. And so they, they partook of that fruit. But the reality is, is that God had already told them by his word, don't take of that fruit. He told them, you need to believe what I'm saying. Don't trust in your senses because they'll get you in trouble. They'll lie to you. And so Paul expresses that same truth. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. But how are we to do this? And my question is, how are we to do this? And how do we know that we can trust? The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He said, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. So if we rely upon only what we can see or only what we can hear or only what we can touch, that's not faith. That's not trusting in the Lord. That's trusting what you and I can tell is happening. And this theme continues in verse 3 of that same chapter. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith we understand, notice that word understand, that the words were framed by the word of God, excuse me, the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made by the things that are visible. So the things that we see are not, were not made by things that are visible. They were made by a God who we can't tangibly see, and yet he's there. And we see that in the evidence of the creation that you and I live in. He says, by faith, and then he writes, we understand. Now, how many of you at some point in your life thought, if I have to have faith in something, then I can't understand it. I just got to check my brain at the door. I thought that for a long time. But the writer there in Hebrews says, by faith, we understand. Let that sink in for a minute. We can understand by trusting, by putting our faith in what God has said. So this scripture says that it's by faith that we can understand. But how is it that we understand by faith? Now, those present on the day of Pentecost here that we read about last week, they witnessed with their eyes and they heard with their ears. Remember, they witnessed with their eyes the flaming tongues of fire, the the divided tongues of fire resting on the believers there. And they heard that sound come down from heaven and fill the room where the 120 were gathered there praying. Those were things they could trust in, right? Not necessarily. I've heard wind before. I've seen things before that weren't really there. And so how do I know I can trust in that? So we're going to look at that today. But the first question that those that witnessed those tangible evidences had was, whatever could this mean? What could this mean? They heard a testimony or a Rama, which means a fresh word from the Lord. And what happened was they were given this ability to speak in the languages of all the people gathered there. And as they were given that ability, what happened? All the people that were there understood what was going on. They heard it in their own language, it says. And as they were hearing it in their own language, recognizing that these men were just simple Galileans that had gathered there, they knew something else was going on, that God was doing something fresh. He was speaking in a new way. He gave them a Rama, which is just a a fresh word from the Lord. That's just what the word means. But how could they be certain that these men weren't just false prophets that were given some sort of divine way or some sort of false prophet way to speak to them? How could they be certain that this wasn't all just a big show to draw their affections away from their God? And Peter gives us, gave us the answer in verse 14 through 21 last week of Acts chapter 2. He expressed to those who were standing there questioning what had just taken place that this is what this was spoken of in Scripture. And he quoted from the prophet Joel. 
So God gave them a fresh word, a rama, but we always have to check our experiences and those fresh words we think we're hearing from the Lord by checking with logos, the word of God that's in scripture. That's the word that doesn't change. And so if we check it with what God has done in the past and what he's said he's going to do in the future, then what happens is we have this rudder that says it divides between what is false and what is true. It's something that will never change. And so God wants to do that through his scripture. And Peter shows us this by quoting from scripture from the prophet Joel. Peter viewed the experience that he had just seen, not through his own eyes or his excitement, which oftentimes we get excited about things, but he viewed this experience through the lens of scripture. And scripture explained that this is what God had been planning for a long time. God began the church and was pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And he was revealing through the apostles that though salvation came through the Jewish nation, according to the Jewish prophecy and through a Jewish Messiah, this salvation would not just be for the Jews. He was expressing that to them. But what would, excuse me, but would be offered to the whole world instead. Now, how do I know this? Because it says in last week's uh, verse 21 in chapter 2 that whoever, or I like the old King, King James, it says whosoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say Jews, it doesn't just say Greeks, it doesn't just say Gentiles, it doesn't just say barbarians, it doesn't say only people from Arcadia Valley Chapel, it doesn't say just Pentecostal brothers, it says it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means people that have never been in church. That means people that blaspheme the Lord. If they call on the name of the Lord, God can save them. No one's outside of his reach. So Peter gives a scriptural explanation for all that has taken place. And then he continues standing to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the crowd who are all continuing to listen to him. Now that he's expressed this in a bold way, he's gained an audience. But what I want you to notice is that Peter doesn't just tell them, you just got to believe, brother. You just got to believe. What he says is, although that is the point of his message, you do need to believe in Jesus Christ. He explains to them. He reasons with them. He appeals to them why they should believe. And I think that's something that oftentimes is missing in in our faith, is that we, we know to tell people to believe in Jesus Christ, but we don't know to tell them or we don't know why to tell them they should believe. We kind of stay there at salvation. We go, well, I just believe and God saved me. And that is true. But people are going to come along and they're going to have questions. Why? Why would you trust in this God that you can't see? Why would you trust in this book that was written by so many authors? Why would you trust in this kind of old religion? And so Peter gives them some whys. They're asking why? What does this mean? And he's going to express it to them. Not with his own opinion, not just with I think or we've always done it this way, which is oftentimes what we do. But he says, this is why you can trust in Jesus. So Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I finally made it there. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, meaning God knew ahead of time this was his plan, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified and you have put to death, 
whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So, in verse 22, Peter explains that Jesus is the Messiah, but then he gives a why, right? And uh, uh, Brian, would you give the next slide, please? He's going to give three reasons why you can trust that Jesus is the Messiah. Number one, according to the works that he did, verse 22 says there, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by, by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. And so I'm going to have you turn there to John chapter 3, verse 2. <clears throat> because we have the witness there of a, of a man who approached Jesus before his death, burial, burial and resurrection. We have this guy by the name of Nicodemus. Many times he's referred to by Bible teachers as Nick, Nick at Night. You guys have ever watched Nickelodeon, Nick at Night. And Nickelodeon, Nicodemus, <laughs> Nicodemus approached him at night because he was a rabbi. He was a, a Pharisee. And so he approached Jesus and he said to him, this man came to Jesus by night, verse 2 said, I should just let the text speak, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus' testimony says, Jesus, I see what you're doing here. And the things that you're able to do, no one can do these things unless God is with him. So God's with you. I recognize that. And that's my only point from that verse there, is that those that were around Jesus recognized that there was something special about him. He wasn't just like any other guy. He was a man that was being used by God. So number one reason he gives them is, you can trust that Jesus is the Messiah according to the works that he did. His works, what he was able to do, testified that he was someone special, that he was somebody that God had touched and was using in a mighty way. So the second one, we can see there in Acts chapter 23, chapter 2, verse 23 through 31, says there, him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, in other words, you took him in a way that was not even good according to man's law, you unjustly tried him, you crucified, and you put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says, and he quotes from King David in the Psalms there, in Psalm 16, concerning him, he writes, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I, may, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. So that's what David wrote. And Peter's going to explain this. Verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead, he's buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, meaning his descendants, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. 
He, foreseeing this, meaning David foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So, Peter explains that Jesus is the Messiah. We saw first one, according to the works that he did. Now Peter explains that Jesus is the Messiah, according to the fact that he was resurrected. And he quotes there from Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11, to show that the resurrection was part of and included in the will of God. It was his plan to bring the Messiah on the scene, to give him over to lawless hands, to allow him to be killed, buried, and then the resurrection would show that he was not just some other guy. And then he looks at the life of David and he says, David spoke about the resurrection, but it wasn't about David because we know that because we all know that David died, that he was buried, and many of us have visited his tomb. And so he wasn't talking about himself. So he shows that the resurrection was part of God's will, and he's pointing out here in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 31, that the song, the psalm being written by King David could not have been about himself since he died. And so there we have the second reason. He says, Peter, Peter explains that Jesus is the Messiah because the works that he did. He says, Peter's, or Peter says, Jesus is the Messiah according to the fact that he was resurrected. And now we'll see our third one, verse 32 through 35. This Jesus has raised up of which we are all witnesses. In other words, they were all there. They saw him resurrect and then they saw him ascend into heaven. Verse 33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter here explains that Jesus is the Messiah according to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that they just witnessed at Pentecost. And there was 120 there that had witnessed, heard the noise, and those that gathered to hear Peter preach all gathered because they heard that sound of a mighty rushing wind descending from heaven into that room. It made uh, made quite the noise. And then he explains here while interpreting Psalm chapter 110 verse 1, as speaking of Jesus Christ, because it says there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And David is referring to one of his descendants. So if he's going to refer to one of his descendants, he wouldn't refer to him as Lord or Master. He would refer to him as my son or my great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Somebody that's in the diminutive, not somebody that's above him in stature. And we see this, Because Peter is using exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 22. So go ahead and turn there. In Matthew chapter 22, and I believe it's verse 41. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees there in You know, the Pharisees often spend a lot of time asking Jesus questions. And so it seems like Jesus decided, you know what? I'm going to ask you guys some questions. 
So Matthew 22, verse 41 says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David, of course, because they all knew that the Messiah was going to come through them as a nation. Who do you think he's going to be a son of? So he's asking them that question. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call the Messiah Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So that's the exact same verse that Peter quotes here from Psalm 110, verse 1. Verse 45, Jesus says, he continues, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, no, no doubt Peter noticed this about this conversation. He was there. He said, man, if I'm going to quote something, I'm going to quote the same one. I'm going to make the same argument that Jesus did. If David, being his father, in, in essence, being his patriarch, and his descendant is going to be the Messiah, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's, he's saying, there's a greater than David. You guys all thought that King David was great, but he was promised by God to have a descendant who would ascend to the throne of, of being the Messiah. The Messiah would come through the lineage of David. So he's a greater than David. So Jesus is the Messiah according to this ministry of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. He explains here while interpreting that psalm. So Peter is using the same reasoning. And instead, Jesus would be a king as a descendant of David who would sit on the throne forever. Not just any throne, though. He's not just going to be some king. He's not just going to be another part of that dynasty. But he's going to sit on an everlasting throne, ruling an everlasting kingdom. So Jesus is more than just a king, but he's an everlasting king. And no man can be an everlasting king. We only live so long and then we die. But Jesus, being resurrected from the dead, given life by the Lord to, to just live forever, he's going to sit on that throne. So Peter makes a final conclusion. He says, according to the works that he did, he's the Messiah. According to the fact that he was resurrected, Messiah. According to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he's the Messiah. So he gives those three reasons. So verse 36, Peter makes his final conclusion. I guess I need to turn back there. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. And then he says, Whom you crucified, surely that cut them, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all, that's an important word there, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so, his final conclusion is based on what? It's based on the wise. It's based on the evidences. We have evidences. We don't have to check our brain at the door. We don't have to just tell people, just believe. We can give them reasons they can believe. His final conclusion was based on the evidences that he explained. God has made, both Je made Jesus both Lord, Master, and Messiah, Christ, 
Savior. He's more than just a Lord and He's more than just a Savior. He has to be both. So the crowd's response, they were cut to the heart. And I love this because the reason that they're cut to the heart is not because He's harped on a soapbox. It's not because He said, you know, you need to stop doing this, this, and this. It's according to He let God's Word speak. He spoke God's Word into these people's lives They had witnessed Jesus in the miracles. They had seen all that had gone on, but that wasn't enough. He spoke from the scriptures. And since the scriptures did the talking, they were cut to the heart by the Lord. When you and I try to cut people's hearts, what happens is they feel condemned. Condemnation drives us away from the Lord. But when God speaks to us, when he speaks to them through us, and we use his word, the result should be conviction. And conviction drives us to the Lord. They say, what shall we do? Had Peter gotten up there and said, you guys are screwing up. You need to, and started condemning them. They probably would have left. Like, you don't even care about us. But since he was willing to take the time and explain to these people who, yes, should have known. But he gave them grace and he spoke to them longer on it. He took extra time to explain things. Didn't just assume that they should have known. He said, well, since you guys don't know, I'll share with you what I received freely. Jesus took time to explain it to him, so he took time to explain it to them. And I love that. He took them to the word. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 expresses something to us that I think is very important. We need to remember it all the time. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. These people's hearts are laid open before the Lord as they're receiving the word of God. And the result is they realize they're in the presence of the Lord and they want to do something about it. God's word is a discerner of hearts. And I read that verse and it says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know what a two-edged sword represents there? It represents you and I's idea for fighting battles. It represents the weapons that we try to wage warfare with. We have our ideals. We have our ideologies. We have our morals that we like to assert onto people's lives. If there's anything that you can share into people's lives, if it's politics, put them away. If you want to have any impact for the Lord, put those things away. Because the most important thing that you can convert somebody with is the truth of God. And that's the main point I want to make there. We do not need to try and be the Holy Spirit for people. I guess that's the main point. Instead, we need to speak God's word into their lives and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. He's going to give them conviction. He's going to give them the interpretation. Remember that Jesus told us that he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would do three things. He would convict the world of sin. We don't need to do it. The Holy Spirit will. He would convict the world of righteousness, and he would convict the world of judgment, the coming judgment. Non-believers would be more likely to be convicted of sin if we would stop sharing so many of our worldly ideas and instead fill ourselves with God's word and then 
Let God unleash it into the world by our words as we speak them with people in everyday situations. So Peter has shown this love by preaching to his audience, and the Holy Spirit was convicting them of their sin. And the question is, how do I know that? And because their response is they were cut to the heart and they respond, men and brethren. They don't use like, hey, you jerks. They say, men and brethren, people that are dear to me, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the word there, excuse me, Peter says, repent. And that word just means turn around, be baptized for the remission of sins, or literally because of the forgiveness of sin, be baptized. The word there does not imply that your sins are forgiven because you've been baptized, but instead, since your sins have been forgiven, they should be baptized to identify with their Savior. This is one, <clears throat> this is one way that we can identify with Him, by allowing our lives to be buried with His, symbolically, raised up in newness of life, just like His. But the point is, is that baptism doesn't save. There's lots of arguments amongst the Christian church about what does baptism do? And all it is, is it's an act that you and I can do, a step of faith to identify with our Savior. He submitted himself to baptism, and so we do the same. And we say, Lord, I want to identify with you. I want to be like you, just like a child wants to do what their dad wants to do. And so <clears throat> we recognize what he's done, and we want to do what he does. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 through 41. Lost my pager. And with many other words, he testified and he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I love that. They were converted, <clears throat> they listened to him continually. They were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to the Christian church, to the body of Christ. At the giving of the law that we talked about at the very beginning of today's lesson, or Bible study, at the giving of the law on the day of Pentecost, you may or not remember uh, the part of the story in Exodus chapter 32. God had revealed the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, and as Moses was returning from the mountain, the first time, to deliver the law of the Lord to the Israelites. He returned to the nation of Israel, and they, while he was up there for 40 days, had grown tired and waiting for him to return. And many people refer to this incident that took place as the, the golden calf incident. Basically, Moses had spent 40 days with the Lord on the mountaintop, and as he came down, he saw the nation of Israel that God had delivered from Egypt and they were given over to an idol that they had made. They got tired of waiting on the Lord to speak to them through the law that Moses was going to bring and they made an idol out of the, the earrings and the nose rings and all the gold jewelry. And when they started to worship that calf that they had made, uh, Aaron said, oh, I don't know what happened. All we did was we took this gold and we put it in the fire and this calf came out. Well, that's not really what happened. What he said was, hey, where'd Moses go? We don't know. Let's make an idol. They went back to what they understood about worshiping gods in Egypt. Remember, they had seen all these idols in Egypt. And they were like, well, somebody delivered us. Let's, let's make an idol so we have something to worship. And so they made this golden calf. But when Moses saw this, 
He was righteously angry, and because of that, he threw down the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which broke the original copy, and he went into the camp, and he melted down the calf idol that they had made. And then the Levites, who were the most zealous of the whole crew, strapped on their swords, and they start slaying people. Now, we might think this is a little harsh, but this is the fledgling nation of Israel, and so God's making an example, saying this is, this is an act that will not be tolerated. You shall have no other gods before me. And so all those that were worshiping that idol were slain, and these Levites helped it. My point is, is on the day of God delivering the law to them, the nation witnessed the slaying of some 3,000 souls. 3,000 people were died at the giving of the law. But in the events of today's passage, in contrast, according to verse 41, at the birth of the New Testament church, there was new life given as the disciples witnessed. And in contrast to the deaths in Exodus, the saving of some 3,000 souls. When the word of God is shared, it brings life. The law, us trying to live according to our works, does not save, but the work of Jesus does. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law is no doubt true, but it will not save you. But grace and truth came through Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So as we close, go to Romans chapter 3. One more uh, reference there. I think this puts it more clearly than I ever could. Romans 3, verse 19 through 26. It says, Now now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, in other words, following the commandments, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace and through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation or just as a payment that's deposited into you and I's spiritual account. God set forth as a payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, knowing that it would take place ahead of time, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The crowd that Peter is speaking to on the day of Pentecost is a crowd that followed the law. They were all in Jerusalem at the time because they were fulfilling the feast that God told them to practice. But on that day, what I want you to notice is that Peter expressed to them, you don't have to worry about following the law. 
Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He was perfect in every way. We killed him because we thought he was blaspheming. But even though we did that, God wants to use him to save you and I. And that was the good news that he shared that day. And as he shared it, 3,000 souls were saved. I think that's a beautiful thing. So Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to experience that truth, to receive it in our own lives. And Lord, I thank you that you give us that ministry of reconciliation, not just to receive it, but then to go and share it with others. Lord, thank you that our lives are made bullhorns for you so that others would receive grace and truth. Lord, oftentimes we want to share the truth with people, trying to condemn them, maybe even trying to convict them, but Lord, we need your spirit to empower us to express the truths that you've spoken into our lives to make them to where they'll impact other lives. So Lord, more than anything, I just want to pray that we would recognize what we've been given in salvation and that we'd be able to express that to others, give them the why we trust in Jesus so they can know why they should trust in Jesus. But Lord, apart from your spirit doing conviction, all we're going to have is, is words to give. So Lord, we need you to shed the, <clears throat> the blinders from those that don't know you so that many could be saved. Lord, would it be that you would use us to express to just one person, let alone 3,000, so that we could see salvation and see it in other people's lives and we could impact the, the place that you've planted us. Lord, use us for your glory and for the salvation of many. In Jesus' name.